Welcome to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. On this show, we share Ginger's journey and speak with subject matter experts about a variety of dementia-related topics. Ginger, a former English teacher and librarian, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2019. This diagnosis has changed her world and has given her a unique perspective on life and living. I'm Christoph, Ginger's son and full-time caregiver. I've created this podcast as a way to share the best practices I'm learning about caring for a person with dementia. Along the way, we'll document my mother's journey through her unique storytelling. You can subscribe to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast and find all the resources we discuss at lwalz.com. On today's episode, Ginger and I discuss holding on to and recalling memories. And then we talk to Brandy Becker-Wright of the Alzheimer's Association about how Alzheimer's affects the brain's ability to store and retrieve memories. But you can hear me now? Uh-huh. Very much so. Good. The headphones are okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. They're comfortable, too. Good. So... We are in a new space to record a conversation with different equipment. Yep. Hopefully to get better vocal quality. <laughs> we'll see how that works. It might be overkill. Um, I wondered if you wanted to talk about traveling today. Traveling in a car, or in a plane, or in a boat? That's a very good question. You've done all of those. Yes. And you've done a lot of travel. Yes. So I think about the trips we took when I was a kid out to Maine, mm-hmm. uh, to Rockport. I'm not familiar enough to say yes to that okay that is on the east coast correct yes yes then i did i do remember it and that was when karen lived in maine correct she was actually in camden now i remember yeah and her in-laws were in rockport Mm, that's true yep and then we did things near the ocean and you went on a boat when you were in camden and I think it did not go well. <laughs> Do you remember? No. You were on a small sailboat on the ocean and got really seasick. Oh, I would. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't remember that? No. Okay. And I remember that you went to Japan to visit JP when he was in the Marine Corps there. Do you remember that trip? I do. Yeah, that was a very interesting place to be. Um, To see, we were in areas that were not necessarily touristy. They were like my own home in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is related to a state, which is related to a country. Mm -hmm. It's very much similar to that. 
that everything is organized in a certain way. And you live here, oh, you, that must be in such and such a place. And and then it get the, the whole conversation gets like, well, have you been to such and such a place that's very beautiful? And, and you're getting all of that from natives. Right. So that was, it was a very, um, I learned a lot. The people were lovely. Um, and I think you visited a school while you were there, right? You and Dad and Celeste? It, it seemed, yes, we did. Yep. And Boy, I, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. What I recall, because I was starting teaching at that time and wasn't able to go on the trip, was that um, the classrooms were very cold. Yes, they were. <laughs> to, and... And your comment was to keep the kids awake. <laughs> that would not fly here in the United States. Oh, uh, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> Although there will be many students who attempt to make it work. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you also traveled to Azerbaijan for work when you were training software for other librarians. Wow, I'd forgotten that one completely. Yeah. So an old Soviet bloc country that you visited. And I remember you telling me a lot about the food, going out in the evening to try and find where <laughs> open businesses were to, to eat after you'd been working all day. And it seems like you had some travel issues getting in and out of countries. I don't remember that. Yeah. I don't remember the details either. No. And that whole food thing was, we had one person that actually lived in the greater area there. And she's the one who saved us in many times. Like, okay, I ordered such and such, but what is it? Okay. Because we had no idea. And then she knew she, how to she, help you order. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you remember being there in I, Azerbaijan? Yes, but very vaguely. Okay. I, I remember the name of it because it's such an unusual word. Oh, sure. What's one of your favorite trips? Favorite overall in my whole life? Yeah. <clears throat> It would have to be one of the federal um, national parks. And um, she went to, went to as many of them as we could cram in to the who is, short summer who is we? piece. My, it was always my father's idea. He's the one that bought the tent, bought the little gas thing that you cook on, and, and just went out big... Big time. This is what we're going to do. So these kids have some idea of what the world really looks like in other places. And it did. It was a real mind expander for all three of us. So You, your brother, TJ, and your sister, Susan. Correct. And, and, my, and my mom. And your mom was there. Yeah. So how old... Would you have been ish? 
Uh, I would say eight-ish. Eight? Then Susan would have been quite small, right? Probably. Isn't she six years younger than you? I think you're right. Yeah. So were you in grade school or high school when you made these trips? I think I was in uh, that Rocky Mountain one that I mentioned. Um, That we all went together just like we always had. But yeah, the minute we got there, we had to get all of our stuff unpacked, washed, and put in the closet where it belonged so that we could go to school the next day. When you came back from the trip? Correct. Okay. So what grade would that have been? Well, I want to say it was the sixth grade. Okay. That was the highest our little elementary school went. Hmm. And so from there, I took a bus, which traveled down our road every day. And and that's how I got to school. Okay. So what do you remember about those trips to the state parks? I understood then why they were national parks. Oh, I said state parks. <clears throat> right, national parks. And, well, I, we feel the same way about our state parks. Um, when something's run by your government, you know it has value. So when I went to a park along with my dad and the rest of my family, um, we went to several that were like in the Upper Peninsula, uh, a little island over here, and so on. I mean, everything that was touristy that we couldn't afford, which was the big lot of going to a national park for all of us five to go to a national park there were funds that were needed and it wasn't just this a long time ago but there wasn't a hamburg stand on the road or something like that you went to the grocery store and you had a little gas stove and you brought that into the cabin with you and my mother did all of her cooking in a place like that okay so you mentioned a tent and you mentioned a cabin so was there like a combination during those trips um then i don't really remember whether we did both things in one trip but i do know that there were some things that we went to that were in michigan and we chose them because they were doable we didn't have to pay any money to get in um and still it was very worthwhile our time and so we packed all that stuff in the car again and went off to a state park here or state park there we did a lot of those okay and then the longer trips you took some out west right the longer trips were the ones that my father really chose We're going to see this, this, and this, and so on. Um, He was the one that, I I want to say that in some way, because he had been around um, the 
army had sent him to different spots, he'd picked up on the things that not only you couldn't haul your kids to it and say, look, here's a great place for you, because it was not put together like that. But they did have parks for families that were put together by our our government, um, and that was probably most of it was statewide, not countrywide. So what parks did you go to out west? Out west I went to, um, well, as I said, we went to Grand Canyon. I know there were others. One of them was a place where they had a lot of um, statues of the different, um, up to that time at least, the presidents, um, other heroes. Daniel Boone was in there. I, why I remember him, I don't know. But um, So it was that type of thing you stopped to say, okay, this is so-and-so. Can you tell me about his life? And we know this was, we knew this was coming. My brother was not fond of it, but <laughs> he cooperated. You were going to get quizzed. <laughs> yeah. Because it was a learning experience. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So your dad was a teacher. Oh, yeah. And you were a teacher. Yeah. And I was a teacher. <laughs> Poor Tom. What, what the heck? He didn't have a chance. Right. <laughs> And you went to Yellowstone, I think, right? Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. Okay. What happened at Yellowstone? You know, it sounds crazy, but um, they they were mostly walking. You and and the reason you walked is because over here it was rocky and so on, but over here. It was a huge lake and looked very mm, peaceful. And then there also were a lot of animals that came, let's say, they just came in looking for what food is still hanging around. Um, I remember at one point where my mother had fixed dinner, we'd all sat down, ate, but not enough because she had obviously some things that were left over. And it wasn't a place where you could put it in a refrigerator and think it's, I mean, you're getting on the road again in the morning. So she just piled it all in a whatever dish she had eaten from, walked out the front door because the garbage place, which was large, was right outside the door. She opens the door, picks it up, steps outside only to be face to face with a very large bear who wanted mood uh, food to eat and <laughs> the picture of it if you ever did the movie my my mother opens the door she's now like less than a foot away from the bear and <laughs> she just takes the whole plate and throws it up in the air and that was fine with the, with the bear. He didn't care where his food was, just as long as it was there. Oh, I'll never forget that. And my mother was just shaking. Cause <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing it was my mother that answered the door, because we would have reached out to pet him. 
Yeah, that's a big animal. Mm-hmm. Probably doesn't like being petted. I I don't know. They're so used to having people around that they might be very non-challenged. You put the dish down, then you can do everything you want. As <laughs> long as I can get out the food. I'll suggest to any listeners that they should probably research whether petting bears <laughs> is recommended or not. We don't want to advocate anything unsafe. Right. We we went to another one that was just a little bit beyond Yosemite. Um, and it was a canyon. A national canyon. Like the Grand Canyon? That you mentioned I think before? that's it. Okay. Grand Canyon. And um, we all had donkeys mm-hmm. to sit on. And the ledge that we are going down is very narrow. So you really, I mean, they, they really advertise that heavily when everybody's getting packages and trying to get this. And, and it keeps saying, there is a store, people, and it will still be there when this trip is over. <laughs> so, like, please don't stop now to buy all these things that don't matter. You're, you're going to miss all of the beauty of that. And it is. It's just incredibly beautiful. Um, the coloration of the rock uh, against a blue sky. And, yeah, it's just... That probably was one of my favorites, although the bear story is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. What What did you do on the donkeys? Just rode to the bottom. It's a long ways. Oh, okay. And you hear from the um, people that work there, you hear about Indians and how many of them live in very similar spaces in the West. And... Um, it, you you couldn't even figure out if the people had a cabin or something made out of wood. Most of it was not not there. You used large pieces of rock that would fit together well and still leave you a, a way to walk in and out. They did all that together. Were there dwellings, former dwellings that... You toured when you got to the bottom? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that was part of why you went to the bottom? Yes. Gotcha. Again, educational. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was educational to us, Tom and I, but I think more so. My mother, my skittish mother, you know, just was... Everywhere, trying to tell the donkey where to go, you know, and all that. And my dad was right behind her. Catherine, Catherine, it's all right. Just relax. Let him do the work. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> I can hear her say it, yeah. <laughs> hmm. So, of course, my dad had been in the service, so he knew how to handle places that were foreign to him. Okay. And um, she had not had experiences like that. Made a difference. Probably, yeah. And little kids, little kids and a donkey? That's cool. Right. So we had a lot of faith in some people. 
So Was Susan along for that trip? She was. Was she on a donkey with somebody? Yeah, she was in between my mother and my dad. On her own donkey? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And if she'd had any difficulty, I think one of the two of them would have just taken her off of a donkey and put her right here in their lap. Mm-hmm. So, no, she did really well on that. Okay. Any other trips that you are fond remembering? Fond of remembering? I think if I could, if I could remember better, I would have. Okay. <laughs> Um, if we hauled out some of those picture books that we have yeah. up there, photos, mm-hmm. I could probably find some of those. That's a good idea. We could look at photos and see if that springs anything to mind. Well, that's it. I don't know that you'd necessarily want, because you'd have to have another something or other hidden here to take a picture of the picture. Right. Um, or we could just describe it. Or, yeah, that'd be the easiest thing right. to do. So if we can find a couple of things in the photos, that'd be terrific, I would think. Right. Okay. Good. Well, thanks for talking about travel. Okay. Sounds okay. good. All right. So it's good to meet you, and thanks for being available for this. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So Brandy Becker-Wright. Yes. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, What do you do for the Alzheimer's Association as a care counselor? Yeah, so care counselor is sort of a title that we use for our social work roles. So I am a licensed master's social worker, and my particular role as a care counselor is based in one of our hospital collaborations. So I know you guys are on the west side of the state and I'm in Metro Detroit. So one of our big hospital systems here is Henry Ford Health System. Yep. And um, so I am primarily working alongside of um, the ne- one of the neurologists out of Henry Ford Health System in um, what we call the Center for Cognitive Health. So she's... Um, kind of her primary interest area is those with dementia and memory loss. And so I um, work alongside of her as people are coming in for new appointments, like they suspect they may have some memory issues going on and are looking for maybe a diagnosis or people who are following up after they've been diagnosed. Um, So I sort of meet with the family, sometimes also the patient, depending on the structure of that appointment, but I meet with the family Um, often while she's doing some of the more medical stuff to provide resources and support, um, education, brainstorming, things like that, sort of right, right as a part of their appointment. So it's really nice because social work services are kind of built into their visit with the doctor. Okay. So how did, did those people just go to Henry Ford and that particular neurologist, or are they in a, going to a particular program? Right. So, um, so basically if they were referred to that particular neurologist, 
um, they sort of have that built in automatically. It's kind of part of part of seeing that specialty neurologist. So of course, not everyone who, you know, has dementia or has, you know, memory loss um, that, you know, sees a Henry Ford neurologist will see her um, because she wouldn't be able to handle that kind of caseload. But um, usually she tends to see more of the cases that are a little bit more challenging, maybe younger onset cases, maybe cases with a lot more behaviors, maybe a little bit more unique, but we do see a lot of more standard cases as well. Um, so it just kind of, you know, it depends on how they get referred to us, but yeah. So, you know, sometimes people know what they're getting, um, because they've heard about the program through like word of mouth. A lot of people don't know that they're getting all of that when they come, but they're usually happy to find out that they are. So <laughs> that's good. So this brings up a whole topic for another episode, but it reminds me that where a family should start if mm -hmm. they suspect that someone in their family has dementia or right. if it's a person who is worried about themselves, like my mom was back in 2017 when she first reached out to her general physician to get sure. tested. Um, I think the, what, one of the things that I noticed for me was I really had no idea what resources were out there or how to navigate to find them, mm -hmm. where, where to start, you know. So um, Alzheimer's Association was one of our early contacts and thankfully pointed us in the right direction for a number of things. So yeah. without getting into a whole nother episode about where should you start, um, sounds like Alzheimer's Association has a 24-hour uh, phone number. Yes. Where people can call. Yep. And do you have that number right offhand? I do. Yeah. So we have a 24 seven helpline and that is a great resource because it's really good for any kind of, um, question or concern or resource or brainstorming or just about anything you can think of or connecting you to one of our programs. Um, so it is always a good place to start, even if you're already connected with us, but you're just kind of like, I lost their number or I need to register for this program. It's a great way to get back in contact. Um, but yeah, the number is 1-800-272-3900. And that is a nationwide us. number too. So okay. um, yeah, so anyone around the country, because we are a, um, a national organization and there are chapters in you know, every state and you know that kind of thing, um, anybody can call the number, you know, nationwide and try to locate resources that are near to them, no matter where they're located. Okay. So again, for the memory challenged among us, me being one, I got the yes. 1-800 part in my head. Yep. 1-800-272-3900. And that will be on the website. Yeah. Now <laughs> as a resource. Yes, Absolutely. So thanks for the uh, introduction, uh, Brandy. The topic for today is holding on to memories. And one of the things that um, I've, I've noticed patterns in my mom's uh, memories that I, th I think I've noticed patterns is a better way to say it. <laughs> and so that was really where I wanted to focus today. And uh, right now you and I are talking, I'll bring Ginger in in a, in a few minutes. Um, 
but I wanted to get some of the nitty gritty taken care of and then we can have a more general conversation with her. So can you just give me an overview of what Alzheimer's disease is and how it impacts memory recall? Absolutely, yeah. So Alzheimer's disease is essentially a disease of the brain. Um, it is a type of dementia. That's something that I could go into a whole topic on that too, but it's something that people often you know, confuse the terms dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that. But I'll keep it simple in saying that it is the most common type of dementia. Um, and essentially what's happening is there are these two proteins in the brain that are, um, sometimes if you've done any kind of research on Alzheimer's, you hear the words plaques and tangles. And essentially these proteins are placking and tangling in the brain and it's kind of causing some disruption in the ability for the brain cells to communicate as well as they should with one another. And eventually some brain cells start dying off and things like that, um, which causes difficulties with many things. And um, with Alzheimer's in particular, the areas of the brain that initially are the most impacted have to do with uh, memory and things like um, judgment and reasoning and um, like executive functioning, which has to do with like decision-making and things like that. So those are some of the areas that you often see people struggling with the most sort of earlier on in the process because Alzheimer's like other dementias is progressive, meaning it gets worse over time. The longer that someone goes on with this disease, the more and more of the brain that will be affected. So that's why, you know, when you see someone in the you know, middle to later stages, you may see problems in other areas. You know, sometimes people have more physical challenges and things like that because eventually more and more of the brain can be impacted. But um, like I said, the the initial starting points are kind of more with memory, executive functioning, decision-making, things like that. Um, so I think, um, and I have a, a really good, ex like kind of real world example, I think about, um, kind of getting into your question about the recall and, and maybe why it is that people remember certain things versus others. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it would make sense to bring it up now or maybe when your mom is here, um, because I think she may relate to it as well, or I could okay. do it both, but I don't want yeah. your listeners to be uh, too repetitive. So Right. Uh, no, I think it's fair to bring it up twice. Um, people okay. can fast forward and rewind. They have control. Of that yeah, they have control. thing there. They can okay. skip at any point they want. Yeah. So um, it just reminded me that uh, when my dad was alive and they had both been um, diagnosed with dementia, he with vascular dementia and my mom with Alzheimer's, um, it seemed like the best course of action was to go into assisted living at that time because they weren't safe doing driving and cooking and those kinds of things. And at that point, it wasn't obvious that um, they needed one-on-one -on -one kind of care. And so in searching for assisted living scenarios, uh, I sat down with a director from one of the assisted living facilities that we were uh, considering. And she said, I lost my mom to Alzheimer's a few years ago. And... Um, Actually, she put it, my mom died of Alzheimer's a few years ago is how she put it. And, and my jaw kind of dropped and I was like, wait, wait um, you just said died. Mm -hmm. 
of Alzheimer's. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry that you would hear that from me, but yeah, eventually a person forgets how to breathe. And, you know, that, that this is a progressive disease that actually leads to death was really a new piece of information for me. Um, so now that I'm the full-time caregiver for my mom, I'm really interested in between now and whenever that time is, because I know the time range is average on six years as long as 20. Um, in the meantime, I want her life to be as full and rich as possible. And right. so that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast is so I could learn as much as possible. And also I wanted to engage her with the podcast as much as possible so, because she feels very useful when she's conversing with people. She's a very social being mm -hmm. and loves to have conversation. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So in any case, it's dire, but I didn't want to uh, focus on the dire. I really wanted to focus more on the now and how to appreciate as much of the now as possible. So that's really kind of where I'm going with all sure. of this. So I've noticed that uh, Ginger remembers events pretty clearly as long as it's in that late elementary to high school age range. Mm -hmm. um, but once you get beyond that, she's jumbling people and details um, and so I really was came to this particular topic wondering if there are uh, commonalities about people with Alzheimer's and the age range that they remember best. Does that is that common for that to happen? And if so, when is it that people often settle on? Yeah, so I think... Um... I don't know, I guess, exactly if there is sort of that sweet spot of memories, but I will say that definitely younger years, um, whether that's childhood or I think young adulthood, um, tends to be more easily recalled, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and you know, I, I think this is where I'll use my example for you. And, and again, I think if, if you think it makes sense, I can definitely share it with your mom too. But um, one way that we kind of compare memory loss that comes along with Alzheimer's um, and as you kind of move through the stages is we kind of compare it to keeping a journal. So if you kind of picture all of us, everybody who doesn't have memory loss as well, kind of keeping a journal of everything that we do every single day, we go throughout our day and we keep a journal of who we talked to, what we did, where we went, all of it. It all went in this journal. And it's kind of like for people who have the very earliest stages of Alzheimer's, maybe when we're just starting to notice there's a problem, the very first thing that happens for them is it's kind of like their pen runs out of ink. So as they're going throughout their day and they should be writing down some of these details about what they're doing and who they're talking to and what they had for breakfast and different things like that, even though they're trying to write it down, that pen isn't working, the ink isn't coming out. So their page ends up blank, or sometimes it ends up with little fragmented pieces that you can kind of make out a little bit, but maybe don't make sense. And so what that looks like in real life is, you know, maybe you coming home at the end of the day and saying, mom, what did you do today? And she kind of opens up that journal, looks at that page that should be for today 
and she really has nothing to reference. And that's why that very short-term memory of what happened earlier today, a few hours ago, yesterday, is just not there. It's really escaping us um, because that pen just wasn't working for us to be able to write down those things that happened very recently. When you move more into like the middle stages, um, it's kind of like the pages of that journal start to fall out, but they fall out in reverse order. So starting from the back, you know, and, and you got to think as an older adult, you've got a pretty big journal, you know, you've got pages and pages, years and years worth of memories in there. They start to fall out in the reverse order. So things starting today, moving backwards in life, you may have five years, 10 years, 20 years worth of pages that have fallen out. So now what that looks like is we go to reference our journal and the things that are most fresh for us are things that happened 20 years ago. We have all the details for those things, but the things we did yesterday or today are just not there. Mm -hmm. Um, We have very little memory of what that looked like, but we could tell you about picking up the kids from school, even though our kids are full grown, like it just happened. And often you see that you see people with dementia talking about things that happened many years ago as if they happened yesterday. You know, you'll see them speak in that way. You'll say, what did you do today? And they'll say, well, I, you know, I, I baked a pie for the kids for when they came home from school. And you're thinking, well, that's not right. I know you didn't do that because I'm your kid and I'm full grown, you know? And so it doesn't make any sense, but that's what feels fresh to them because that's kind of what's in their journal as the most recent pages. And it's sort of like, if you were to try to reorient them, if you were to say, well, mom, wait a minute here, I'm, I'm full grown. I didn't go to school. You know, you didn't bake me a pie for after school. In some ways it wouldn't make sense to them because they wrote the journal, right? Who better to trust than me? That's my journal. I wrote it. It's my handwriting. You know, obviously this is all theoretical, but why not believe myself versus you? Yep. So, you know, we often don't have a lot of success in reorienting them because they're going off of their own memory telling them that. And so, again, as you continue to progress more and more throughout the disease, more and more of those pages continue to fall out and you move backwards. Now, obviously, with that example, it's not completely linear. There may be some things that stand out more than others, you know, from different time periods. But I think that's a pretty good way of thinking about why people sort of kind of move backwards in time. It also makes sense why people struggle to remember people in their lives who came into their lives a little bit later. So for example, like grandchildren, you know, they may have came into their lives within the last five, 10 years, and they may struggle to remember them a little bit more, especially if they don't see them often, you know, and it's just like, well, here's a picture of Jimmy, you know, he's your grandson, he's four. And it's like, who is that again? You know, because they're in those pages that are already long gone. So does that, does that make sense? That, that does really make sense. And what I've noticed is that sometimes Ginger is frustrated when she can't recall events and people clearly. So she, um, you know, typically feels better if I supply some details that I'm familiar with about a story in those pages that seem to have dropped out. Um, and it, it does often seem to prime the pump, though. So then, like 
almost like invisible ink reappearing. Uh, you know, maybe the page isn't gone, but it, right. the, all the ink on the page just turned to, to use your analogy mm-hmm. of pages and ink. Uh, maybe the ink was just so faded and then priming the pump with some, you know, other details that are related to that because I'm aware of it. Right. Then she'll all of a sudden remember five other things and talk about it. And she also seems relieved because like, ugh. I grasped that memory that was so elusive and I, and I got it to to some degree. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I'm wondering if there's other methods that I can be using in a conversation when she's not being able to recall details that would help reduce her frustration with that. Yeah. You know, I think it depends. I think what you're doing is, is obviously working very well. I think it depends on what kind of conversation you're having. You know, if it's something that's a memory like that, you know, like a something that happened, something she did, and she's just not really grasping it, but you know what it is that, you know, she's trying to remember or, or what happened, and you can give those couple of details, um, and that works, I think that's great. You know, if it's something that's more... Um, present day, like something that's going to happen, let's say, like you're talking Mm -hmm. about an upcoming event and she doesn't remember that you're getting ready to go see another family member for their birthday coming up, let's say. And she's confusing some details of that upcoming event. Um, You know, I think it's less about getting her to have the correct information as it is just letting her go with whatever it is that she believes. Because the important thing is you as her caregiver are gonna make sure that she gets there at the right time. You know you know what day it is, you know what time it is, you know where to go. So it's kind of like, you know, let's say you were supposed to go to this party tomorrow on Saturday at, at noon, but she thinks it's a week from now at three you know, and you're having a conversation with someone else about it. And she's like, yeah, I'll see you next week for the party. It's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. And in your mind, you're kind of like what you want to say, like, because this is what happens, right? Like when you're talking to most other fully capable adults and they have incorrect information, our default response is to correct them because we we don't want them to miss the party, right? right. We wouldn't want one of our friends to miss the party because they have the wrong information. But in your mom's case, we, I would say, just let her go mm-hmm. because in that moment, if you said, well, mom, remember the party's actually tomorrow and we're going to go at noon, that might embarrass her. It might frustrate her because, Oh, there's my darn memory again. Right. Mm-hmm. So in that case, I think you could just kind of let her go mm-hmm. because you know that you're going to get her there at the right time on the right day. Um, and avoid that frustration or that potential embarrassment. So that might not be exactly along the lines of what you're thinking, but Mm -hmm. I think that piece is important to know too, because I think we sometimes get caught up on people remembering and having the right details when a lot of times it's not that important if they remember for little Mm -hmm. things like that. I think in the context that you're talking about where it's like historical information of old memories, what you're doing seems to make sense. Yeah, uh, thank you. And I want to bring up another point. Um, So before uh, taking on this role, um, my brother and sister and I were talking about what was best for Ginger. And uh, 
I was really considering this role, but didn't want to make a half-informed decision, both information-wise and emotionally. And so I said, well, you know, I'm going to work with a counselor um, at least for the next few months to, you know, go through this whole, the role, what it is, what it means to my life. Is this something mm -hmm. I really want to take on that I'm capable of taking on? And, you know, am I up to the task? Um, because I, I certainly didn't want to take the role and then have resentment later. Um, sure. and, and so I've continued to work with the counselor because the, you know, it's just so good to have that as a resource, you know? And, um, so I was talking about a time that I had lost my cool over, um, some details that she wasn't remembering and I was trying to correct her. And this is early on in the stages and, um, of me trying to figure out what I'm really doing. And I, I did have the sense that I wanted her to have the details straight, at least now, this moment. And if we had to correct it again, I would, boy, I'd correct it again kind of thing, you know? And my counselor said, you know, that's probably delayed grief. And I hadn't even thought about it that way, is that mm -hmm. my insistence on her getting the details correct was to get her back to the person that I knew yeah and she's not that person anymore and so I had to move past that um, so it, it was interesting to me that sometimes our insistence on correcting other people is even you know for our own benefit even if we don't recognize it right our, yeah that's yeah. a great point I haven't I haven't really thought about it that way but I think that's a great point and um, it is something hard to give up as a caregiver and it's I think it's so easy you know when you're worried about making sure the house is clean and making sure she has her medications and her meals and you know even to even in just daily little conversation if there's something that she says that doesn't make sense again without thinking our natural reaction is to correct yep and it, it takes a lot of you know concerted effort not to do that um but I think once we find that we just let it go and kind of go with it. It takes so much stress off of a caregiver's plate because we're not, I hate to say wasting, but sort of wasting our breath, correcting yeah, so yeah. much information that she very well may forget again anyway. When, like I said, we know that the details are going to be taken care of. That's part of our job as a caregiver is to make sure she gets to the appointment on time and has, you know, all the details straightened out. Yep. So if she has something wrong in the moment, it's okay. You know, she can, she can believe those things and it's, it's, it's going to be fine. So kind of giving ourselves all of that anxiety about whether she has all the details is more stress on us. Right. So that's a good point. Yep. So th the other thing before uh, getting Ginger into the conversation here, um, the other thing that had come up recently is we were talking about um, a news story and it it related to a dramatic event in my sister's life when she was little and involved my mom. And even though things ended up turning out okay, it was a real crisis in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there were tears, everybody, you know, all that. And, and she couldn't remember any of that. And, uh, you know, then she kind of reflected for a minute and she was like, well, 
I guess that's a benefit of my disease. I don't remember the bad things either. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know, sometimes her insight is just surprising. Right. Um, and, and I hadn't thought about it that way. So I'm just curious. We talked about pages falling out or ink disappearing or whatever off the pages. Do the, the bad memories, the negative events and the positive, I loved those moments and they, those were great. Do they all fade equally or are, are one set more subject to fading? You know, I think that's a great question and I don't know if I have a great answer. Um, I, you know, I think that everyone is so different, just like this disease affects everyone so differently. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it could depend somewhat on, um, possibly someone's history, even with some mental health, you know, um, for example, if someone's experienced a lot of different trauma and depression Mm -hmm. and things like that in their life, um, those things very well may stick around with them because it's just been a big part of their history. And no matter how much dementia they have, they may not be able to pinpoint exactly what that negativity was, but they have sort of that, the feeling of the trauma and the negativity, you know, um, I think on the flip side, if you have someone who has very positive family support, um, friendships, things like that, that kind of build them up, you know, they have more of a positive experience. Um, I think it's easier to remain positive. So I don't know that I have a great answer to your question, but, but I think what I will say is, um, one of the things so there's kind of two different systems of memory. There's factual memory and there's emotional memory. Uh And factual memory is things more like names, dates, times, places, things like that. Emotional memory is how things make us feel. So factual memory typically fades first. So, you know, for example, there may come a time when your mom doesn't recognize a person, for example, she couldn't say their name, how they're related to her, how long she's known them. But if they are a positive person in her life, let's say they've always been very nice to her, kind to her, she's had good relationship with them. When they walk into the room with her, she's going to feel good about it. She's going to have that positive energy sort of thing. Okay. So she might not say, oh, I know you, you're Susan, you're my cousin, you know, whatever, but she's going to feel the positive energy in the same token. If there's a person that she's been, you know, a lifelong enemy with, she can't put their name, the face, whatever, but they walk in the room. She's going to feel anxious. She's going to feel unsure. She's, mm, I don't, I don't like this person here. Right that kind of memory sticks around a lot longer than the factual memory. Interesting. So, yeah. And so um, I think in the sense of like bad memories versus good memories, I think if they do stick around, the person very well may not be able to describe them. They may not be able to say what happened, say what they were, but if there's something that reminds them of it, they may get sort of that negative feeling or that positive feeling associated with it if that kind of makes sense yeah it does 
And the other thing I'll say, just while we're on the topic, because I think it's really interesting, is that music is really closely related to emotional memory. And they've done a lot of research on that. Um, Because, you know, most of us have experienced times where, you know, you hear certain songs and they kind of take you right back to a certain time in your life. You can associate being a certain place, feeling a certain way, kind of who you were with. Sometimes you can even smell, you know, what was in the environment. And that's why they say that music works really well with people with dementia, because it can bring them back to certain memories. um, And it can be such a really positive experience for them, um, because music is so closely tied to that system of memory. Interesting. Yeah, and I have been using music um, to kind of set the tone. I mean, as one would when you have a a party or an event, you know, yeah. you pick pick music that goes with it. It's soothing or it's upbeat or, you know, whichever. And uh, so I've I've done that, and it does really seem to have an impact on mm-hmm. on her overall demeanor. So and yeah. and se- sense of calm because otherwise she might be up and down and fidgeting and that sort of thing. Uh, with if we put some big band on which she grew up with, mm-hmm. um, then you know she's much more content uh, yeah. to sit to sit and read, or mm-hmm. you know, or uh, or maybe even sit down and try and write a letter, you know, so that kind of thing. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, the other question that comes up as we talk about pages of memory. Uh, is is it helpful to create physical pages with pictures and names and that sort of thing as a as a directory, so to speak, so that she has a reference to go back to mm-hmm. um, about those grandchildren that she might not normally, uh, you know, recall, uh, but to have a you know a book, uh, uh, stuff on a wall, you know, whatever of how people are related, who they are, how they fit in. Does that help? Yeah. And that's something that we do talk about with people sometimes um, is creating some sort of like a scrapbook, a memory book, a picture book. Um, And you can do it with lots of different things, not just people even. Sometimes depending on how her language evolves, um, people can have uh, more trouble with finding their words as the disease progresses too. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, she may not recall the name of the restaurant down the street that you guys always go to but she can she can see it she knows exactly what she's talking about and you probably do too but she can't think of the name yep so with the book or however you want to do it some people just do like little index cards but yeah certainly with family or like close friends making a little book um sort of like family tree almost type of thing, like how people are related. Um, I think that's a a great idea. You can do that and have her, you know, have her help you with it. So it's a whole project, you know, it's an ongoing thing. Um, But you can also do it with commonly talked about places um, or things. Um, You you may not have to do that, you know, like right now, if it's not a problem, but it's something that people sometimes utilize later on if the language becomes more of a problem, because then if you kind of see that she's trying to communicate something to you and you kind of have an idea, um, you may have like a section of the book, for example, that's all, you know, places that you commonly go. And if Uh. it seems like she's talking about wanting to go somewhere you would kind of lead her to that section and maybe she can find 
that restaurant or that store that she's talking about and she can show it to you, you know, kind of thing. Right. Um, that's why some people will do like index cards um, and kind of have like different sections or, you know, you can do a book, you know, there's been different ways that I've seen people do it, but yeah, absolutely. Having um, those like pictures and relationships and things like that can be um, helpful. I mean, I don't, it's not going to stop her from forgetting, of course, but I think um, being able to sort of remember in that way, or at least kind of go over it sometimes um, can sometimes be helpful. Okay. That's good to know for future. It, it reminds me of uh, one of the things I did uh, when my dad was nearing the end of his life and he became almost completely nonverbal. And we just had a whiteboard with like a smiley face, a frown face, and in between a flat, you know, mm -hmm. the face. And then uh, we had a yes, no, and we had uh, uh, numbers one through 10. And we'd often use those to, you know, have him communicating with us, you know, the simple yes, no stuff. He could point, um, you know, uh, how good was that? You know, he'd point to the eight or the three, you know, I mean, yeah. you'd, yeah, you'd, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. It was, it was very helpful for us to at least get some basic responses from him because mm -hmm. he would, he was so frustrated that he couldn't, he would try to make words, but they were almost unintelligible. And then he mm -hmm. would just get mm -hmm. frustrated and shrug his shoulders and stop trying yeah. so it it yeah so i'm glad that you mentioned tools to help uh a person communicate when it becomes harder for them to do that yeah so thank, you can do it with you. things around the house too you know like um you know a picture of a toilet for needing to use the bathroom right. or you know things like that too so um if it's something that she's kind of like if, if it's something that you guys start talking about or that she kind of sees the concept of now, if you do end up having to use that, it might be less foreign to her. If right. you just start trying to do it when she needs it, you know, or if she needs it, I should say. Yeah. Okay. So. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go get Ginger. So hi, mom. This is Brandy from the Alzheimer's Association. Brandy, this is Ginger. Hi, Ginger. Hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm good. Good. Ginger and I were uh, talking about this uh, episode uh, about Alzheimer's and memory. And the question that you asked, Mom, uh, yesterday was, I know I have the memory somewhere up here. And she pointed to her head. Mm -hmm. And she said, how do I find them? Yeah. It's a so, great question. Okay. Yeah. So I think... You know, sometimes we kind of think about the brain as being this big, it's almost like a filing cabinet, right? Because when you go throughout your day and you get bits of information, it's kind of like a big filing cabinet and you have all these different file folders and they should be really organized, right? Like if you had a file for your taxes and you had a file for your car and a file for your house and a file for things about your kids, and then you somebody told you that information and it was something about Kristoff, you would put it in your kid file and then you'd file it away. And that way, when somebody asked you about that information again, you would, you know, very quickly, your brain would sort through it and it would pull it back out and then you would have it nice and easy to access. But unfortunately, what happens with Alzheimer's is sometimes those files get a little jumbled up. So the information is there, like you said, it's there, 
but it's not very well organized. So it's kind of like when somebody says, you know, asks you something, your brain goes up there and it starts searching the files, but it's searching and searching and searching. And it's kind of like somebody just went up there and ransacked all the files and now they're everywhere and you can't find it, but it is there. If they gave you long enough, you might find it, but not in a normal conversation time frame, right? So, you know, as far as how you find them, I think that's tricky um, because unfortunately part of what your brain is doing by not keeping those organized is part of the disease. I think how you find them is by continuing to do um, different activities and things that keep your brain sharp. So, you know, things that keep you thinking and learning, um, things that keep you engaged, those kinds of things try to help keep your brain fresh. You know, they, um, they try to keep those brain cells active. So, you know, different things like reading, writing, um, things like doing puzzles or playing games, um, maybe um, doing like a um, crossword puzzle or a Sudoku or something like that. Um, having these kinds of group discussions are really good. Those kinds of things um, work well to try to preserve some of the brain cells as best we can. Um, but I don't know that there's unfortunately a very clear answer for you. Okay. Um, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been living with it long enough that I'm like, okay, do other people walk to the refrigerator and then have to walk back to where they had been seated? Oh, yeah. Now I know. I remember that now. You know, right. So. Well, I do that. Walk <laughs> well, into a room and wonder why I walked in and then have to walk back to where I was and then go, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's what I do yeah. also. Right. So I don't know if, am, am I truly diseased? Um, or am I simply, since I've walked away from school, am I just now in a different pattern? Because I'm not teaching anymore. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not doing that, what am I doing? Because it's the doing that sticks stuff up here. Right. When I have to do something, it shows up. Do you keep notes of things that you need to do for yourself? Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm guilty. No. <laughs> you don't. You don't keep notes. Hmm. That's surprising. Most of the patients that I talk to that have memory loss, one of their compensation strategies is trying to keep notes, you know, of what they should do or things they want to remember and things like that. But you don't do that, huh? You occasionally you have written something down or even asked me to write something down. And I think it's only a way to pin stuff down. I, I know that I'm going to want to come back to this. Right. And and so in order to do that, I'll scribble it down on a hunk of paper and 
Mm-hmm. Hope that I know, remember where I put the paper. Right. That's that's the second part of the challenge is I wrote it down. Now, where did I put the paper? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you find Thanks. that it's easier for you to remember things that happened in the past? Like he was saying, you know, maybe back when you were in school versus things that happened more recently. Well, the things that were from way back when I was getting my degrees, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember the highlights of those, but that's about it. What about yeah. even younger than that? How much of high school do you remember? Quite a few guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I graduated from a very small high school, and it was out in the country when my family, my whole family, moved closer to the city. So that kind of changed things for me mm-hmm. because I seldom got to see those people that I was went to school with. We were all graduated, and we weren't yeah. living near each other, so that didn't help. So you went to school in the country. You can give a shout-out to your high school. Hudsonville. There you go. And <laughs> then later moved uh, closer to Grand Rapids and kind of lost touch with the people in Hudsonville. Gotcha. Okay. You're nodding your head, but you have to say it out loud for the microphone. Yeah. People that have something like Alzheimer's, they, they often talk about memories from their past much more frequently. And they're able to do that with much more clarity than things that happened a little more recently in their lives. So I've noticed, Mom, when we have a conversation with other people and they say that they just rode on a motorcycle or something like that, right? They're relating something. You might tell a story about when you rode a motorcycle and, you know, then you will remember certain times when you did that and some other times when you did, you you don't remember. So do you remember a time that you rode a motorcycle? Oh, yeah. Give me a, an example. I was at um, uh, Stacy and John's backyard. Yep. And this, I say, older gentleman. Stacy's dad. Yep. Had, had come with his very unique motorcycle. He has a three-wheeler Harley mm-hmm. branding. Mm-hmm. And he was looking for somebody that he could give a ride to. And nobody was paying any attention to him. And so I I love motorcycles. So I, I said, I'll go. I'll go. <laughs> and I did. And I won't forget it. it. It was just a really cool thing. So so this happened just a couple of months ago, Brandy. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, she talks about it often. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it is a recent memory that she's hung on to. Okay. Now, so who who is Stacy? Stacy is uh, our daughter-in-law. Yeah, your okay. daughter-in-law. Yes, my daughter-in-law. Yeah. Okay. And we were at a party for her birthday. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. So, do you remember the motorcycle ride that you took when you were in high school? 
there was a guy at school that gave you a ride on his cycle? Yeah. Larry Elders. Okay. And did you get in some trouble? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like, my parents didn't like Larry and they didn't like his motorcycle. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that motorcycle story is also quite clear. Mm-hmm. It's So it's interesting to me, um, you know, because before the motorcycle story at, um, you know, a couple of months ago at this party, the only one I had heard was the one from high school with right. Larry. And she couldn't remember uh, one when I was a kid and I got onto a motorcycle, as did she. We both took a ride. Uh, and that was when we lived on Plymouth Street in the townhomes. Um, it was in the 70s. Okay. And we each got a motorcycle ride. And I remember that because it was my very first motorcycle ride. I think it was in first or second grade. And you don't have any memory of that at all. No, I don't. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's interesting. You know, there's a page that, mm-hmm. you know, has disappeared. And that's that's kind of pretty common what you're describing, where in the midst of a conversation, someone may bring something up, you know, Oh, I went to a, I went to a Tigers game the other day. And then, you know, Ginger, you may have a memory of going to a Tigers game when you were a teenager and you would say, Oh, I went to a Tigers game once when I was in 11th grade. And then you start telling that story. Even if you've been to six Tigers games since then, that's the one that stands out in your mind. So, and, and that kind of thing happens often where someone's talking about something, you can relate to it, but the stories that are freshest in your mind to talk about the most readily are ones from a long, long time ago, even if you've been to a Tigers game last year, right? So that is something that we frequently see. They People with, with Alzheimer's, they tend to kind of steer the conversation towards the past because it does feel more relevant to talk about, more easy to talk about. Those details are just more fresh there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mom, do you have any questions for Brandy? The, the one thing I, I would wonder myself is I have, for instance, high school, I have some very clear moments um, and stories that go with them. Um, I I guess I wonder how far back does it go? I'm just curious. I don't remember, I, I don't remember my dad coming home from the army. Okay. You know he did, but you don't remember. I know event. he did. And, um, It was the first time I had seen a train up front. So I can still remember sitting there and my mother telling me I had to stay right there because there were so many people. And um, she said, I think your dad's going to be done on this end. But you stay here. I'll bring him to you. And for some reason, that just pissed me off. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I, I could walk that far, right. you know, just, <laughs> I, I know looking back now, I think it was, she hadn't seen him for a long time because she'd been in, he had been in the 
I don't know, war somewhere, but I think it was in the Hawaii, right. Japan type. He, he was part of the cleanup in yep. Hawaii. Yes. Yep. yep. And so it's been a long time. And, and as a little kid, I didn't realize that seeing her husband first was very important to my mother. And I mean, I was just a little kid. What did I know about yeah. that? Sure. <clears throat> How old would you have been at that time? I wanted to say I was three or four. Okay. And it was enough because my dad had been gone the whole time. The, hmm. You know? And so I was very eager to see him. Yeah. And of course, so was my mother. Mm-hmm. And my brother was just a baby. So she had to carry him. Maybe you just answered your own question about how far back your memories go. A, a long ways. Well, quite a ways, yeah. And some of that is because some of those things that came into my life were so... Oh, it, so important to me. Little kid. You know, um, we would get letters, so, and she'd read those for us but as a little kid you don't really believe all that that he's coming back he'll he'll come back you know all of that i'm like okay jesus he'll come back <laughs> let's do it and it took a long time to get to that point yeah yeah i think it's that yeah it sounds like you know you have sort of pieces of memories from that age range, which I think, you know, that that's not really my area of expertise, but I think from a lot of things I've heard, you know, maybe four or five years old tends to be a common time that we start having memories uh, once we get to be adults. So that sounds about right to me. Yeah, I was oldest grandchild. No, that's not true. Because Fred's older than me. Um, so, no, I, my brother relied a lot on me, and I relied on him. There were kids in our neighborhood, but they were way older than we were. Mm -hmm. So we, we, were, we had to be each other's friend. Right. <laughs> well, Brandy, anything else that you want to bring up related to holding on to memories? Well, the only other thing I would add is, you know, I, I mentioned that one thing that you can do to, to preserve some of the memories is, you know, the mental stimulation, but, you know, other things that are good for your brain are also like physical exercise. Um, they have done a lot of research about uh, particularly aerobic exercise. And um, essentially, if you do, you know, aerobic exercise, meaning you've got to get that heart rate up, a little bit and kind of keep it sustained for a period of time, but they've done a lot of clinical trials and research showing that with the extra blood flow and oxygen flow that the brain is getting, what that's doing is it's kind of help, uh, helping the brain to compensate for the other nerve cells that are not, not working quite as well. So for example, if, um, if a thought or a memory maybe kind of gets stuck, kind of hits a roadblock up in there, the, um, the exercise helps the other neurons to pick up the slack a little bit hmm. and try to get 
that memory or that word out. So doing um, as much aerobic exercise as you can is another way to kind of um, preserve memory, preserve brain health, um, try to slow progression of the Alzheimer's as much as possible, as well as staying socially connected. So, so um, you know, seeing friends, seeing family, um, getting out and about as you can. I know this pandemic hasn't helped a lot with that. Um, it's not. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, even phone calls, video chats, things like that, you know, help too. But um, definitely, you know, trying not to be too socially isolated. Those, those three things, you know, physical exercise, mental stimulation, and social engagement are things that they have studied a lot to show make a big difference on just overall brain health and hopefully will help kind of preserve those memories and kind of help with that recall a little bit better. Okay. That's good to know. We're going to have to get that pickleball net out so you can chase after a ball with a paddle. <laughs> We've been doing a lot of bowling recently because I joined okay. the league uh, during one of my evening off uh, when I have help to you know get some time off for myself. I had been go going bowling and then I was there every week and the person, the, one of the managers said, do you want to join a league? And I was like, yeah, actually I do. Yeah. So, so I've been dragging her out to the bowling alley and thankfully she really enjoys it, but that's not, that's not so aerobic. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is, it is a lot of uh, good activity and she's enjoying that and the socialization that's gone along with it is mm -hmm. good too. Um, but yeah, we also have a pickleball net that we uh, can set up and yeah. the ball back and forth. So. We'll get back to pickleball. All right. Sounds here, good. Here before the snow flies. Right, right. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Brandy, thanks so much for being a resource and talking with us today. I really Absolutely. appreciate your time. Yeah. And uh, there was so much information that I got uh, out of this that I, I really appreciate uh, your, your contribution here. Absolutely. It was wonderful to meet you both. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. All right, take care. Okay, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with Alzheimer's. Please visit the Living with Alzheimer's website at lwalz.com, where you can subscribe to the show and find all the resources we discuss in podcast episodes. We'll see you next time on the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. Until then, here are some words of wisdom from Ginger. Relax. Let him do the work. Mm -hmm.